Sarah. And this is Everything is Rent, the podcast where we talk about the best musical of all time, Rent, song by song. Today we have a very special guest. Um, you know him from Star Trek Discovery, but you also know him as the originator of Mark in Rent. We have Anthony Rapp. Hi! <laughs> Hello. Hi. <laughs> it's very, it was, I have to say it's pretty funny that you introduced me first on a podcast about rent with Star Trek Discovery, but you know, that's cool. That's well, Listen, there's a lot of crossover. Uh, <laughs> nerds from every caliber of life are <laughs> tuning in. There's a Venn diagram situation. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And then also you're on that with uh, Wilson Cruz. Yeah. Which is a whole other level. Yeah. <laughs> I first met him when he was doing the... the uh, Benny Company is what it was called in La Jolla before that went on. That was that became the second national tour. Neil Patrick Harris was his mark originally. And uh, I went out. I was out in California on a vacation during my run on Broadway. And they were in rehearsal. And I, and I met them all in rehearsal. And I watched them uh, do some of their stuff and hung out with them. But that's when I first met Wilson. But I was aware of Wilson because of his work on my so-called life. Yeah, he was Angel when I saw it on Broadway the first time. And we were all very excited that the oh, okay, guy from yeah. my so-called yeah. life was in the rent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he, he did the... His first couple weeks on Broadway were my last couple weeks on Broadway. He, mm. he replaced Wilson Jermaine Heredia right before I left. To, uh, I took some time off between Broadway and London, and then I did the show in London for seven months. But he was my, he was my last angel on Broadway. Nice. Yeah, so all these years later, we're, we're getting to work together in Star Trek Discovery, which is pretty fantastic and pretty like a huge, wonderful surprise. Yeah, that's the best. So um, normally we start out by asking people what their experience is with Rent, how they feel about it. Do they love it? Do they hate it? Where, where'd they first hear about it? Um, so uh, yeah, just start from the beginning. I've been living in New York for about five years or so, and uh, I was a little out of work. I'd been working pretty steadily, but then I was out of work for a while. And so this is in the fall of 94. I was actually working at Starbucks, which was my first survival job that I'd had to have since moving to New York. And um, while I was... I, I just done like the training. I barely had could get any hours because believe it or not, this was before Starbucks was on every corner. They only had like a couple of uh, a couple of locations. So I was I was in sort of you know not I wouldn't call it desperate times, but you know pretty low times. And there was a new agent. He got promoted at my agency at the time, where I, meaning where I was at the time. He got promoted. My first meeting with him on his desk was what we call a breakdown. You know, sheet describing mm -hmm. a project with descriptions of the characters. And on his desk was a sheet for Ren. He said, "Do you, are you interested in auditioning for this? And so this was our very first meeting that we ever had together. And the, the description on the sheet was a rock opera. And I don't know about you, but that phrase wasn't exactly screaming genius. It, it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't exactly filling me with a tremendous amount of confidence. Yeah. But I knew who Michael Greif was. He was listed as director. I had auditioned for him, I think like the year, that same year or Earlier in the year, or maybe the year before, for um, the production of The Seagull, which I didn't get, but it was a really good audition experience. And I had seen a play that he directed called Machinal at the Public Theater, which had sort of put him on the map. And it was a really brilliant production. And so I, I was very aware of him and I was excited about the opportunity to get in the room with him again. And I hadn't done a musical professionally in many years. So I was also, you know, personally excited that I that I would have perhaps have the chance to do a, pro a professional musical again mm -hmm. after I'm trying to remember the last time I like relative to that it, 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 it had been maybe 10 years or more since I've been cast in a music 
musical. I'd been doing plays and a little bit of like a couple films and stuff like that. But no one, I, di- I didn't really think that anyone in the New York professional theater community really was aware that I was a singer. And I, I also wasn't super like confident in my singing because I haven't, I hadn't been doing it that much that recently leading up to this audition. But, but I was still excited about the opportunity. And uh, I'm, I, I've, I've, you know, I've, I've been an actress since I was a little kid. I've done musical theater, but my, my real love of music is like rock and roll and pop. And, you know, I'm a child of the 80s. So, like, there was a real, that was sort of a golden era of pop music. And oh, yeah. So, the, in the audition, to audition with a pop song was particularly exciting. And I had also been, I was in acting class at the time. And in class, one of our exercises was what my, my teacher called the hero exercise, which was to take someone you admire you consider kind of heroic to you and then do an, do an exercise where you're not necessarily impersonating them, but you're doing something as them in an effort to discover what about them that's heroic to you might be in yourself. So a way of embodying the heroic qualities of that person in you. So my hero exercise previous to this, I was Michael Stipe and I sang Losing My Religion in that class. And it was this really meaningful thing for me because, you know, part of what was heroic to me about him was I'd seen him live, you know, perform live, and there was something about his live performance that was really electrifying, really present, really compelling. And I also loved the kind of public figure that he was and how he was using his public platform to speak about political issues, environmental issues, and stuff like that. So he was, that's what was heroic to me about him. So I'd, I'd, previous, to this, previous to this audition, in which you know, I hadn't done a professional singing audition in a long time, I'd done this exercise, so I felt kind of like a bit of confidence going into it just from that alone. And so I felt like I... I was, you know, it was kind of like launched me into it. And then I just went up and I, you know, did my best. I kind of, I screwed up though. I jumped, I jumped a verse. I went to like, you know, I, I just messed, messed up the lyrics, but it didn't matter. Tim Weil, who became, who I didn't know at the time, but he was the uh, musical, he was the accompanist at the audition. He became the MD, the musical director. And then he was just like, he was able to just flow with it and go right there with me. And it, it didn't, you know, we didn't miss a beat really. But like, you know, it's just one of those things where I screwed up, but it still didn't matter. And I like telling the part of the story, especially for young actors, because sometimes they can get so obsessed with trying to be perfect in an audition situation. And, you know, the thing that changed my life the most was an audition that I screwed up. So then at the end of the audition, I... I was introduced to Jonathan Larson and he was really friendly. He he mentioned Days Confused, knowing me from that, which was a fun little tidbit for me. I thought, oh, that's cool. And he yeah. seemed, you know, I didn't know anything about him going in and he, he seemed very young. Like, I didn't know that he was that young going mm-hmm. in. And at that time, the idea of young, you didn't really hear about young composers getting production. I mean, it was, you know, still like all these old old guard people who've been doing it for years. Yeah. So all of that, it was just like really fun. And then Michael Greif um, was also very friendly and he gave me a callback right on the spot, which does not always happen. Yeah, that's that's awesome. He handed me a cassette tape. You might remember what those things are or were. Um, <laughs> or everyone, with, if you with, don't, just Google with, it. <laughs> yeah, with the with the song "Rent" on it and uh, the sheet music, and I and he said to go home and come back to go. I, he asked me. He gave me the sheet music, the the cassette tape, and then he said, "Can you please come back in a couple of days um, with this with the material?" You know learned enough to sing it and I was like of course and so that's just you know all of these it, it, everything just felt like really good from moment one all about it was just really like felt fun and easy in the in the right way and then I went home and I popped the cassette tape into my boom box do you remember what that mm, one uh-huh. so that thing is right a boom box <laughs> yeah <laughs> and, and 
and I listened to the music and, it, you know, truthfully, John, what I learned later was that Jonathan had done the recording on his, like, you know, home system, his little MIDI, you know, keyboard thing that he had in his little station, his workstation. Mm-hmm. And it was, you know, it rent is, rent really slammed. In, in live performance. I mean, it's like the drums are really killing it and the guitars are really, you know, crunchy. And But on his little, his little midi, you know, half-assed thing, it was pretty, <laughs> it was pretty underwhelming musically. Yeah, we've, we've listened to some of the demos and they're very silly sounding. <laughs> yeah, so you, you, you know what I'm talking about. He, the lyrics, even though the music was a little wonky, the, the lyrics were pretty interesting. I mean, I don't know if you, you remember those lyrics. If I threw my body out the window, brains all splatter, guts all steaming in the snow, I wouldn't have to finish shooting videos no one wants to show. Mm. So it was pretty like, oh, this is a musical. Like, yeah. Certainly there was nothing like that at the time. So, that you know, it was striking. It wasn't it, like none of it was like like screaming genius, but it was like, oh, that's striking and interesting. And it had a kind of, you know, certainly grooved. And it was in, you know, a very happily non-traditional musical theater kind of feeling. So I was excited about all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so then I went in for my callback. I... Uh, also screwed up my callback. I, <laughs> I started singing the wrong note. I started singing on Roger's note instead oh, no. of Mark's note. But they, you know, they they stopped me right away, and I just started again and again. It was no problem. And so, like both of my auditions for Rent, I screwed up, and I still got the part. <laughs> That's so very I, reassuring. You know, yeah, I mean, I say it's just the truth, and I think <laughs> it's important for people to know. Uh-huh. So you know that was that was really fun. I you know right away, like I didn't get told right away, but I got told I think like that day or the next day. And this was just for the workshop, a ten performance workshop in the fall of '94. So it was only going to be like three hundred bucks a week, which you know it was better than nothing, but it certainly wasn't going to like get me out of a financial hole. Yeah. But it was work and it was exciting. And, and I was really happy to be able to be a part of it. It was going to be like two and a half, three weeks total of work. So it was, you know, in and out, but it was certainly better than nothing. And it seemed like it had some kind of potential. Little did I know how much. Yeah. So the first day of rehearsal, the very first thing we did was Michael talked to us about learning the song that opens the second act which is Seasons of Love. And he talked to us a little bit about what the song was about for him. And he described it as, you know, even though it essentially takes place at a funeral, that's how he framed it to us. It's Mm -hmm. very much about celebration. And that seemed like a really interesting and compelling idea to me too. And so like right away, I was like, oh, like every, everything that was presented to me kind of took it up a notch. And then we sang that song and, and it was like, you know, I don't know where if you can remember the first time you heard that song, but it was uh, completely goosebumps and and yeah. thrilling to be in a room with fourteen other people making that kind of harmony. Tim, our musical director, was like is such a wonderful teacher of music. It, it was just like it, it was just crafting. He was crafting this incredible sound together with us immediately. Mm-hmm. And so, like right there, that was the beginning of my love affair. And then that night, I got the rest of the music on cassette tape and I started listening to it. And, you know, it was like, I was enjoying it, enjoying it, enjoying it. But then it was really at the end of act one, I was like looking through the script. I was like, Oh, there's a song. Let me go. And I get Mark gets to do a lot of stuff in it. That's cool. I'm excited about that. Let me check that out. And I was, it was really, it was like this really fun, sharp number. It was a little more, not traditional musical theater, but it had like a really nice mixture to me of like musical theater vibe meets, contemporary music kind of feel yeah. and but it was really at the end of that song when we all were singing to faggots lesbians like cross-dressers too to people living with living with living with not dying from disease that i was like 
oh my God, that this is, this is exactly what I want to be putting out to the world. Yeah. This is saying things that I, I 100% believe in and are important and meaningful to be said. And this is in a musical. And like among those things that I just quoted, in 1994, the notion of living with not dying from disease, that was just beginning to be sort of talked about. It was like a paradigm shift. Yeah. of people relating to AIDS or cancer as not simply a death sentence, but as something maybe perhaps manageable and livable. And even just even the language around it to say people living with AIDS, not dying from AIDS. Yes, it's, it's semantic, but it was really the beginning of it. It was just it was just very meaningful to me to be in a show that was putting that out into the world, taking this stand for people. You know, yes, it's just it's just words, it's semantic, but semantics shape our reality, and mm-hmm. especially in cases like that. So these were like, I, these were like the really significant moments where that it really started the building blocks of, of how this show became so important to my heart and soul. Like these were, these were two of the, the couple of the very most important beginning pieces. And then, you know, learning and encountering, I'll cover your reprise and goodbye love and the finale. And it just kept getting richer and richer and richer. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't perfect by any means in the state in the in the in that version of it. There were, you know, issues and problems, but there was still something about it that was very exciting, clearly. And then I had a lot of people, not a lot because we couldn't get that many tickets because the, the theater was so small. But I had some important people in my life who were able to come, like my brother, who's a writer and another friend of mine who you know I knew from Interlochen Art Camp. You know, people that I really trusted, a, a friend of mine who was a, a music director and other, you know, just people that I really trusted. And they all left saying this is something really special. All of them. Yeah. And there are people who would tell me, my brother especially would tell me. <laughs> so I kept like, so we did the 10 performances. It was really exciting. We kept, you know, Michael Greif also kept, you know, encouraging Jonathan to, to keep rewriting. And, he, and Jonathan did as much as he could in that very short time. So it was kind of like it was very raw. There were costumes and a minimal set. It was sort of like a scaffolding set and there were light and there was sound and there was a live band, but it was also pretty raw still. You know, there was mm-hmm. very little choreography. There was, a, there was, you know, but it was, but it, it had that kind of energy that said this is something that's going to happen again. And, and Jonathan and I started to become friendly during that process. And he shared with me over the next year, he would share with me updates on how it was going and what he was working on. And one time, I remember one time he, I came over and he, he had just come up with the whole idea for Happy New Year, which hadn't been in the workshop production. The following summer, so this was in the fall of 94, in the, in the summer of 95, he still hadn't, they still hadn't found a Roger. They wanted to cast a new Roger. The Roger who did it in the workshop was good, but he wasn't really a rock a rocker, a rock mm-hmm. singer. And they really wanted to try to find somebody who could embody that. So he got invited, Jonathan got invited to present a couple songs from the show at the opera conference. And he was really honored by that because he took very seriously Rent's relationship to Lavo M. And so he invited me to sing at it because <clears throat> he didn't have a Roger. He, he had a Mimi, a, a friend of his who was willing to sing Mimi. They weren't sure yet if, if, Daphne was going to be able to do it again. So he didn't want to ask her to do it in, in case. Anyway, so so he had a friend of his do Mimi, and then he asked me to do Roger. So it was the one, the one and only time I performed any kind of Roger oh, song in, in, in public. Yeah. Um, but we did Light My Candle and, and uh, Another Day. Yeah, Light My Candle and Another Day. And when he introduced these songs at this little mini, it was a very small conference. I mean, when I say conference, it was maybe 
maybe a hundred people in this little Soho loft. Uh, was this to like get investors or find out where it goes next? No, this was purely just like a, an artistic conference. At this oh. point, the the three guys who became the Broadway producers, they had seen the uh, they had seen the workshop and they had already gotten on board as commercial producers. Mm-hmm. They had part. They were partnering with the workshop. They gave the workshop, um, the New York Theater Workshop, about I think like a quarter of a million dollars or so, something like that. I don't know the exact amount, but some, somewhere around there to fund an, an, a proper production to then retain the right to move it commercially if it were a success, which is, you know, very typical of how these things go. Mm-hmm. He already had that relationship with them and they were already talking, you know, he was sharing with me their, their notions and plans were maybe to find like an old warehouse downtown or an old nightclub that could close or something like that. They were like thinking like a tight specific thing. They were not thinking Broadway. Yeah. Like that, if they were, he never mentioned it. I think maybe he was thinking maybe on some level, but I, it was so crazy to imagine that we would have that on Broadway because there was, it just didn't seem like Broadway would ever be a home to us. Yeah. It was so different than anything that was on Broadway. Yeah. It would have been silly to even attempt that. So anyway, so he, when he was introducing the songs at this little mini conference, he shared some of his inspiration in a way that, you know, as, as we'd become friends, he, we talked some, but I didn't know this, these pieces of it. He hadn't really talked openly about them to me yet at this point, which was that he was someone who had known people who were HIV positive and, and, and or had died of AIDS, and that he, as an artist, felt like he had to do something to respond. And what he had, what he wanted to do to respond was write them because it's what he did best. And that's when he came up with the idea of doing Rent. And that La Boheme was the perfect starting point because La Boheme was about a different kind of plague that was afflicting people on the margin, but that, that it would translate really well to our current situation with people living on the margins who were having difficulty dealing with drug addiction and HIV AIDS. Mm-hmm. So that was the first, I mean, I, I just didn't know that it was that personal and that there was this mission that he had embarked on with it. And that was really empowering for me here, as you might imagine. I mean, it, it helped give even greater context to something that already felt very powerful to me. Mm-hmm. So I was really, I was really grateful for that experience. And it was just another example of the ways in which, I mean, all of that stuff that he said, it, it wasn't, this, I mean, I knew I had worked with people who had died of AIDS from a very young age, been acting professionally since I was nine years old. And I'd known a handful of people who were HIV positive or had AIDS or had died of AIDS. So this was something that was also personal to me. And a friend of mine actually died that summer, a young friend of mine. So it was just another way that it just reached into my heart and, and made me that much more committed to it. I didn't need much. I was already very committed to it, mm-hmm. but it was still uh, meaningful for me. On that, on that level. Oh, that year, that summer of 95 is also when I did Twister, which was a, a movie that was a really unhappy creative experience, ah. which, you know, following this incredible, after I did the workshop of Rent, I kind of, I didn't stop working. So I'd, I'd had this really fallow period where I was really struggling to find work. And then I did the workshop of Rent and then I didn't stop. And all of them were interesting and, and creative and fulfilling. But then I did Twister, which was, you know, better money than a little $300 a week play. But it was really kind of dishearteningly like being a tiny piece of a, a cog in this huge machine and yeah. no humanity. It just was like antithetical to why I become, you know, why I wanted to be an actor. So I had knowledge that they were planning on doing rent 
sometime in the fall, we didn't have the exact date yet, but that I kept, that was something that I kept looking forward to was like this beacon of hope for me. And, and I kept telling people the word I kept using to describe it was, I think it's going to be kind of an event. And there were two words. I would say, I think it's going to be kind of an event. I think it's going to make a splash. (laughs) And, but I, again, I was not thinking, I was not thinking mainstream. I wasn't, I was thinking like downtown off Broadway, cool New York event. Like that, I thought it had the potential to be that. I never thought it would cross over the mainstream. Yeah. So then the end of, of 95, finally, is when we started rehearsals for the off-Broadway production, the full off-Broadway production. And we started right before Christmas. Did you have your Starbucks job still at this point? No, no, no. I, I, had, I had quit Starbucks as soon as I got rent in the first place. Ah. Even though I, even though I wasn't making much money, I was, it was enough to scrape by. So I quit immediately. And just, and then I kept working after that. But like on the, on the day one of rehearsal, I'm, I remember going up to Michael Greco and I was like, I'm, I'm really excited. And he's like, you, you know, Michael, he's such a sweetheart, but he's, he's just always like cautious. And he was like, we'll see, you know, he, <laughs> he didn't want to like put all his eggs in the basket because, you know, you never know. Like yeah. you, put, you care, you care so deeply in terms of the success of it. Like he believed in it artistically, but you know, you just never know if it's going to be met with success. For sure. You do your best, got to cross your fingers. You know, and then sometimes the, the good guys win and sometimes they don't. You know, more often they don't. We started the first day of the second rehearsal the same way. We started with Seasons of Love. And there were only three of us from the workshop, from the studio production, who went on to the off-Broadway production. It was myself, Dr. Vega, and Gilles Chiasson, who was the original Squeegee Man, slash Steve, um, you know, Steve and others, I think, was the technical mm-hmm technical name is a you know official name. so it's just another uh, like i kept i kept feeling like i was um like the kid in the candy store with the knowledge of what everybody else was about to get into daphne and i and Gilles knew how good this thing was and everyone else was like getting to discover it so we kind of got to live vicariously again through their excitement as they kept putting it together and how special it was Yeah. It's so exciting to start day one with Seasons of Love, which after it came out, like it's one of the best musical theater songs or maybe just songs in the world. (laughs) I agree. It's also such a testament to to Michael's brilliance at helping to build the right kind of energy and connection for all of us as we embarked on this. It was the perfect way to begin the process. Definitely. Yeah, he was like, we're not going to start with tune-up number one. Let's, uh... <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll start with this because it's a song about community and unity, and that's what the show is really about. Yeah, it's the heart um, of it. Above all else, the show about creating family and community. And, you know, when I, when I see productions that make me angry, they make me angry because I feel like it's a bunch of individuals on stage, and yeah. I don't feel they're interconnected. And I don't feel them, you know, I feel like they're having their star turn moment and they're not like telling a unified story. When you see productions of Rent specifically or any show? Productions of Rent specifically. I mean, any show that would make me mad, but some shows live in, don't, they don't have the same kind of dependence on it. The Mm -hmm. show lives and dies on that to me, like in such a major way. Yeah. The the plot itself is, is pretty simple and minor, relatively speaking, in many respects, the experience of the show to me is so much about the event of it and so much the event of it is about building this sense of, of community. So if you have a lack of a sense of community, then the show kind of like starts to really fall apart in a, in a way that it's really a bummer. Yeah, we've talked about uh, we recently talked about this with Adam that uh, you can especially I mean, in the original cast, uh, you can see that. Uh, the connection between all of you um, and that you really do love and enjoy each other on stage. And that comes through in the performance of it. Yeah. You can't make that up. Like 
you know, I mean, it's interesting. I've heard, you know, this is a sort of off topic a little bit, but I think it relates. Sometimes you hear about like movies or plays where people have this incredible chemistry on screen, but then you learn that they hated each other. Mm-hmm. So I guess there are cases where that kind of intense dislike can translate into interesting energy and chemistry. But in a show like Rent, I don't know. I mean, it's so much about love and community that if we hated each other, I don't, I think it, I mean, I could be wrong. It's just, yes, it, it absolutely helped that we really loved each other and we really enjoyed spending time with each other. We would go out for lunch almost every day during rehearsals in the neighborhood, East Village, you know, little hang. Some of, most of them are gone now. You the know, Life Cafe? Um, no, the Life Cafe is gone, but we didn't make it up to Life Cafe. That was too far <laughs> from where rehearsal was. We'd go to Cafe Orlin, which was one of them that's gone. Yaffa, there was another one called Mission oh, yeah. Cafe, but they're all gone now. Yeah, we used to, uh, Sarah and I both lived in New York for a long time, and all of those places were favorites of ours as yeah. well. It's a bummer. <laughs> they're gone. Yeah, they're all gone. So that bond was real. And, you know, we had that bond anyway. And then, of course, well, not of course, but then Jonathan died. And, you know, I think in, in, in situations like that, when tragedy strikes, it either drives people apart or it brings them together and it brought us together. Like in the play, it kind of drives them apart a bit. You know, in Rent, where after Angel dies, there's this kind of dissolution of their friendship for a while. So that, I think, is more typical sometimes. You know, these upsetting things happen and people don't know how to deal. And then they kind of fracture and fragment. But in our case, it just it just brought us that much more together. And we were so unified and we were already committed to the show. And we were already committed to one another, but that took it up a whole other level. And to me, one of the best examples of how committed we were was that from the day that Jonathan, from the dress rehearsal, which was January 24th, and then he died after midnight on the 25th that night. From that day forward until the middle of July, including, so that was all the run, all the previews off-Broadway, all the run off-Broadway, all the rehearsal and previews on Broadway, and then all the performances on Broadway. No one missed a performance until the middle of July. Wow. Yeah. In, in every other production that you'll ever see of most shows, and it's no, you know, it's not like this makes them bad people, but especially musicals, people get hurt or they lose their voices or whatever. They, yeah. You know, they get sick. We did the show hobbled. We did the show losing our voices. We did the show sick. We, no one wanted to be the first one to miss. We, were, we just didn't, we believed in our responsibility to one another and to Jonathan and to the show so much that it would carry us through anything. And then finally, it was really, and Adina really did need to take a day off. I mean, she was, her voice was shot and she was the first one. And then it was like, Donna. and then it was like, oh my God, we can take a day off on this. We, we were exhausted. Oh, and the other thing that we were doing during, during that all that time, tons of press, extra performances, recording the album, oh, yeah. you know, the Tony Awards. There were so many, like there was so much extracurricular stuff during all of that. No one missed your performance. So that to me is like the hugest piece of evidence of how committed we were. What were some of the, uh, the biggest changes from the workshop to what ended up on Broadway? One of the biggest changes was the, the Mark Roger fight in the original studio production, the, the Kabila fight. Mark was kind of calling himself out. And then Jonathan, I think, was encouraged to, to change. And I think he made a really good change where he made Roger call Mark out. And I think that just changed the dynamic of the fight really well. Yeah. Um, it just made it more, you know, made it more dramatic stakes were higher. And there's, you know, there's really something powerful about people who love each other telling hard. They're true. They're not the whole truth. You know, it's not like it's the hundred percent perfectly accurate truth, but when, when people who love each other, tell each other hard truths in a wounding way, that's always very moving to me. Yeah. 
when it's done well. So that was just, that was a really big change. The, a lot of the stuff, uh, like One Song Glory was the same melody, but it was an entirely different lyric. It was called Right Brain in the original. Hmm. And it's so much better as One Song Glory. <laughs> I mean, Roger's, Roger's dilemma was just trying to find the right brain and the creative side of his brain. I mean, it's so much less, yeah. you know, uh, impactful than, than, than trying to write one great song before he dies. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think all that all that stuff, the 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 the, the timeline, the, the notion of the urgency of how much time he thought he had left, that was sort of ramped up. Halloween was new. I mean, there's so much. Oh, Take Me or Leave Me was the biggest thing. There was when we started rehearsal, there was an, a page and a blank page where that song should exist, and it said something like, "Insert Offo Marine Joanne number here," <laughs> something like that. So Jonathan Jonathan had been struggling to find the right thing for them to each other and there was nothing in until like week one or like maybe week two of rehearsal something like that and that came literally came running in the rehearsal room with his paper and sat down on the piano started playing the song and then teaching it to Dina and, and Freddie and it was like right away like oh my god this is amazing and he was so excited it was such a breakthrough and then of course that turned out that that was the last song that he wrote yeah Wow. I'll cover your reprise was in there before. I'll cover your was in there before. Light my candle. You know, some there were some things that were trimmed. Like another day, I think there was like a, a part of a verse and part of a, a part of the bridge was trimmed. There were lots of like little things, you know, cut down a little bit. But what you own was entirely new. There was a song there in the in the in the studio production. There was a song that was Mark and Benny and what what instead of Mr. Gray and the Cyber Studio in the first version of the show, um, Benny was going to open up a blockbuster video. So there was a blockbuster <laughs> lady and. Benny's trying to convince Mark to get involved in real estate with him. And so there's a song called Real Estate. So it was this kind of comedy number between Benny and Mark. And then Mark is like, through this, no. So it's sort of the same. I mean, it was much less intense than what you want, but it was like this Mark's moment of like rejecting that and going back to trying to finish the film. Kind of thing. But it was much better now. It became something so much better with what you want. Yeah. There are other things that I'm that I'm not, that are, you know, as I mentioned, Happy New Year was entirely new. Mm-hmm. Without You wasn't, in the in the first version, it was Maureen and Joanne, and it, and it became Mimi and Roger. But it was always like a little uh, a, a, a scene where you saw the different couples mm-hmm. going through their difficulties. But it was sung by Joanne and Maureen. All, almost all the voicemails were different. I think maybe Mark's mom was similar, but maybe not even that. It's hard to remember exactly. But most, if not all, the voicemails were different. There was no buzz line. I mean, there was a lot. There was a, a big chunk of it. Was oh, you'll see, boys is new. Oh, gotta give Tay a song. <laughs> Well, he had real estate in the perspective. Oh, that's it true. Pay, it, was, it was Michael Potter. <laughs> in the when you were thinking, wow, this might be sort of a happening, like a downtown event, make a splash. Was there something in the New York theater scene at the time or the New York art scene that you, you were like, this is going to be the next blank? Uh, I don't know if this will make sense, but in a way, kind of like Tomp or Blue Man Group, but that, that's sort of not... <laughs> a great example but it's just in terms of like downtown theater that was new different mm, weird were, you know alter yeah alternative mm-hmm. kind of but i had seen a production of hair in chicago years earlier but i didn't really know it that well i didn't necessarily have that to compare to it you know that wasn't like a, a really easy reference for me to make so i wasn't even thinking of hair although like at some point when the show came when it when it started performing somebody did describe it like the hair of the 90s Mm-hmm. I think like somebody in the press called it that. Yeah. That wasn't a very familiar reference point for me. So that, I wasn't even thinking that. I, I don't know. This is also before Hedwig. You know, like now I would have said, if you had asked me that question now, like if Hedwig had been first, then I would have said like Hedwig. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> they probably called Hedwig the uh, the rent of the 2000s. <laughs> Did you have a favorite musical growing up that or like a dream role that you always wanted to play? I was I was really interested in playing the MC Cabaret. I did a production of that show when I was a kid in a community theater production where I sang More Belongs to Me. You know, as a kid, I don't think I knew. No one really explained to me the context. <laughs> now I know that's probably pretty haunting. You know, yeah. to see a little adorable child sing that song. Um, but at the time, it was just a really good experience. I didn't know, I didn't understand all the layers of that show, but it was something. So it was a show that I was very familiar with. And then I'd seen the movie, and I loved Joel Gray's performance. And so it was just something that I, that was always something in the back of my mind. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, uh, I'd auditioned to play Jack in uh, Into the Woods, and that was something that I hoped that I could get to do, but I never got the chance to do that. But it wasn't, you know, there wasn't like a lot of musical theater that was really speaking to me and really calling to me. That wasn't like a big priority for me. Mm -hmm. You know, I shared, I shared Jonathan's general disdain for the kind of big spectacle musical. They weren't really my cup of tea. And I certainly didn't feel like they were a good fit for me as a performer. So I wasn't, you know, it just didn't seem like it was a world that was going to be open. So you've been singing these songs or uh, listening to these songs being sung for uh, a few years, I would say. Um, do you have a favorite song yes. from Rent, um, whether it's your own or some, something someone else sings and a least favorite? Oh, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's like context for me. It depends. You know, the, the I think I'll cover your reprise is pretty perfect as a song. Mm -hmm. You know, the way that it recasts the, the the sentiment of "I'll cover you" into this new context, still saying the same thing, but it's saying it in a different with a whole different resonance and meaning. I think that's really beautiful. I just think it's also musically incredible. So that's probably my favorite song from the show. My favorite song to sing would be "What You Own," and then my least favorite song from the show. Yeah, I mean, if you have one. <laughs> that was your least favorite song. Um, I, I mean, I guess it's, this is all like relative. I, I guess we're okay, but I think it's because it's really hard to pull off well. And mm -hmm. so I've seen it not pulled off well many times. So when it's pulled off well, it's delightful. But when it's not, it just doesn't, it doesn't have as much going for it to sustain itself without a really killer performance of it. Yeah, that's fair. But, but this is, that's, that's like a relative, you know, I'm speaking relatively, you know. Yeah, of course. Of course. We love every song in the show, so <laughs> you can say whatever you want, um, but know that um, you're in good company. Speaking of I'll Cover You Reprise, this is a good segue into, obviously, Jesse L. Martin's version is the one that we grew up listening to and loving. And then Brandon Victor Dixon's version in Rent Live was almost took like the next step with it of really embellishing on the notes and taking his time. What do you think of Rent Live? We were actually there the same night you were. Yeah, I mean, yeah, being there, being there was like I can't ever be really objective about experience because I was with everyone and we, there was like it was so it was such a full experience to be there and to reconnect and to witness you know the just the legacy of it and the new you know the new life based on life that it's given. Um, all that was so moving. And the set was incredible and meeting the cast, they were all so like committed and kind. And at one point, Jesse backstage was like, they really are like our kids. Like they're, they're 20 something years younger than we are. And so it's like, come on kids, you can do it. <laughs> so it was really moving. It was really, really moving. And, and I thought that there were some really interesting and cool ways that the, that the text was adapted to help fill in some blanks and to give context, especially to younger audiences that don't really know the history of H HIV and AIDS. And yeah. I thought that that was done well. So, I mean, I was really, really moved by it. I've never, I never did see it on TV. 
I was just in the room. Yeah. So I can't speak to that part of that aspect of the experience, but it was exciting. What was your reaction in in the moment to December 24th, 9 p.m. 1991? We freaked out. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I knew I knew I knew about that. I mean, you know. They've gone back and forth about trying to figure out the timeline. I mean, that's all I, that's all minutiae to me. It doesn't, you know, they wanted to locate it in a time, make sure that it was located at a time before the protease inhibitors, just to make sure that was very clear. Yeah. Mm. I, I assume that's why they picked that date. And, you know, there's, there's different, I've heard different versions of like when Jonathan really started writing it, when he started taking notes. Like I actually went to the Library of Congress and saw a lot of his notes, so... I don't remember what the dates were on everything. So I, I don't know if that was part of how they decided on that date. But that, yeah, none of this, that kind of stuff, no, that doesn't bother me at all. As the originator of Mark, is it just so hard to listen to other people imitate or put their own spin on Mark? No, it's not. I mean, it's, the only thing that's hard is when I feel like they're showboating. Sure. You know, if I feel like the Mark is doing his best to try to tell the story and hold the space, like he's kind of like the engine of it, kind of. And when he's taking that when he's taking that on and and kind of the I don't want to say moral centric that's too strong of hurt but like uh the kind of the kind of the center of it like holding holding the center I guess is what I should say mm-hmm. if I feel like he's doing that then I'm all then I'm all good if I feel like he's just doing shtick and bits and you know goofing off and trying to be a nerd you know and and all and only that, then I get mad. Yeah, and I want to punch him. <laughs> so no, it's, in terms of hearing Sam, I just you know, I hope that they, I hope they can sing it well. I mean, I don't, I don't feel precious about those songs being sung by only me. You know, I mean, everybody should sing the song. Speaking of wanting to punch people, um, <laughs> what do you think when about people saying that Mark should just get a job? I mean, you know, for better for worse, I think that I understand sometimes people. There's people who are super pragmatic and there's people who are super idealistic. I happen to be a pretty idealistic person. Jonathan Lawrence was a very idealistic person. There's pros and cons to all any way of living. I can understand that people could get like impatient with him, but I've always admired his desire to do something meaningful with his life. Yeah. You know, and yeah, that it's easy to, since he does have a little bit of help from his family, he can fall back on that a little bit. You know, that is a, he's a, he's, he's in a privileged position for sure. You know, we're having, you know, this is a conversation too. We're having 20, 23 years later, the, the conversations about privilege have really deepened. It's before everybody got so woke. And so, yeah. you know, the, we, it might be, it might be addressed differently now than it was 23 years ago. Yeah. I think the notion of selling out is a completely different, almost obsolete at this point idea yeah i mean and the other thing is with with new media with with new media it's much more likely that mark could have found an outlet for his creativity that also could have probably made him some money and and the cyber studio like the benny's notions might not have seemed so i don't know wrong-headed the thing about we always argued about benny's notion trying to make clear in the story is that benny's plans are one thing but the benny's plans the fact that benny's plans include kicking out the homeless people that was the that was a thing that was getting us all upset yeah. You know, whether you want to build That's a timeless studio, regardless. It wasn't so much the thing about the project, it's about the fact that he's going picking up homeless people and yeah. thing in return. So like that's the piece that's really true to the history of these village. I mean, I was living on Tenth Street between first and A when Tompkins Square Park they kicked all the homeless people out of Tompkins Square Park, there were riots, you know. So I I witnessed it. So that that stuff is real and I was grounded in that kind of reality at the same time I can understand I mean I can understand that people are like but I think it's, it's sort of missing the point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, the, for better or for worse, you know, and it's, it's so much, 
inspired by La Boheme too. That the La Boheme characters are are super idealistic, committed artists, and don't want to sell their souls and pursue life that has no meaning. Sure, right. For better, or for worse. Yeah. So we we asked our listeners if they had any burning questions for you, most of which we've just sort of organically covered at this point. But um, we got to ask because <laughs> so many people Instagrammed us about this. There's so much interest in the scarf. <laughs> Where is the scarf? How is it doing? Was How it did it war? feel? Was it hot? Um, <laughs> we don't um, know why. The original scarf? Yeah, yeah. people are obsessed with the, the scarf. scarf. Yeah. The original scarf, the scarf that they used in later iterations, it actually got longer and fuller. <laughs> the original scarf was just this, like, Angela found it at a, you know, thrift store. And it was this kind of, you know, really thin. She wanted it to be kind of pathetic. <laughs> you know, not really providing that much comfort or warmth. And, and you know, it was, she also wanted a, a bold, I mean, it had like a bold geometric color thing so they could really read from stage in a, in a big theater. And that, so that's where the, that's where the scarf was born. <laughs> I still have the original scarf. I took it with me. It was gifted to me by the wardrobe people. It, nice. had a, it has a hole in it, <laughs> um, but I still have it. I have my original sweater, which also got had to be mended a million times. Sure. And it's also a different kind of material than they wound up making the sweater from when they did the, you know, later iteration because they want they made it more durable. Because the original the original sweater was a free people sweater, which I don't even think they make men's clothes anymore. Right, yeah. <laughs> and it was inspired by like I, there's a picture that circulates sometimes of Adam and me downtown and I'm wearing a different sweater. I don't know if you and there's actually a couple different pictures. Mm -hmm. Me wearing that other sweater that's like red and has like a gray top. Yeah, like that was a that was a, a shirt from my closet that Angela liked that I wore downtown. And then when we moved uptown again, she wanted to find something that was a little more a little bolder for the bigger theater that would kind of pop more. Do you ever wear the scarf out? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was a really satisfying answer. It's such a funny thing. Like, no one going into anything knows that something is going to become iconic. Can't sure. predict what's going to become iconic. You know, and yet, here we are. It became something that's so significant. And, and you know, Mark cosplay is probably the most common cosplay that I've seen over the years. Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. So, yeah, normally at this point, we listen to a track from the musical. We have made our way all the way through every single track, and we're at the very final finale, finale B. I jumped over the moon. What? A leap of... Ooh. She's back. I was in a tunnel. For this warm white light. Oh my god. And I swear, Angel was there. Does she look good? I love that moment. That's my favorite. She looked good. There is no future. There is no past. Thank God this moment's not the last. There's only us. There's only this. Forget, regret, or life is yours to miss. No. all these songs from previously in the show. Just a nice reminder of all the songs we loved. 
much more upbeat version of this. <laughs> Daphne's voice is so present in this mix. Really I is. love it. At this moment, I'm just, tears are bursting out of my face <laughs> every single time. you if you were talking during the song <laughs> we were just blabbing over here what i would like to say about finale b is that as i've gotten older that it's gained more and more power to me of the the both things being true i die without you and no day but today these two ideas standing side by side interweaving in the way that they do this feels more and more resonant the older i get and the more people i lose and yeah how much life keeps going no matter what happens yeah, I think that it's incredibly beautiful, and you know, I think it's 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 not always uh, the case where composers can interweave themes so perfectly. You know, pre- previously existing themes from from their show in such a in such a perfect manner. I uh, this is a tangent from Rent, but I um, have listened to the music from your uh, one man show without you. Uh, that heavily features without uh, the song without you, but I really enjoyed it. It's very beautiful. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. How far along was Finale, this song, uh, when you were in the workshop versus Broadway? My memory is it was pretty close. I think there were maybe some minor changes to the leading into Finale B, like some of the dialogue. But that basic music was certainly part of it. She was living in the street, you know, all that stuff. Something like that, very much like it was already in there. So yeah, Finale B was pretty close to what it was in the later iteration. When we did, I can't remember when the film, I don't think we did, I don't think we had a film in the original studio production. I just don't remember that. I'm sorry about that detail, but I just think that that's a very perfect way to, you know, try to theatrically convey that Mark has finished his film. You know, it's not literal. It's not meant to be, this is the film. Yeah. But this is like an example, you know, a feel of the feel of it, that, that it's going to be a portrait of the people in this community. Mm-hmm. I think that comes through really beautifully. And that, and that it's, you know, all of us out of costume. Yeah. You know, people in the cast just, you know, it's, it was a way, you know, Michael Greif is always very interested in recognizing that we're in a theater. We're really alive. People up there on that stage talking to you who are sitting there alive on that stage. So having the film be the actual people in their street clothes was just another way of, of, of saying that, yes, we're all just people here mm-hmm. to get in this together kind of thing. I just think it's really perfectly beautiful. I mean, you know, and the thing about Mimi coming back to life, that's something that Jonathan was never, ever, ever going to change. Um, I know there's people who feel like it should have, um, maybe, but that was something that he was never going to change. It was something that he, he wanted the show to end with life, not death. 
Yeah. He was not pretending like she's going to live forever or that she's out of the woods entirely. But for this moment, anyway, she, she rebounded. And you know, that those kind of things do happen in life where people like, you know, before my mom passed away, she had, she rallied, looked like she was going to die, like maybe that day. And then she rallied and lived for another like 10 days. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, yes, it's, a, it's done in a very theatrical way, but it's not beyond the realm of the possible. And, you know, Angel died. So it's not like Rent is saying that people, you know, always live forever yeah. kind of thing. When Angel runs on at the end of the song, I just uh, lose it. <laughs> I love it so much. Yeah. I cry just so hard. Open weeping has been a constant theme of this podcast. Yeah. How often we cry, <laughs> when we start crying, when we're watching Rent, mm-hmm. etc. Yeah, I mean, it's people people who are gone are always with you. Like that's part of it, you know. Mm. And and in, in a theatrical sense, we can have them literally physically be with us, but it's meant to evoke their spirit is with you. Their mem- Your memory keeps them alive, all that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, I think that's what's intended there. Yeah. Speaking of spirits staying alive, <laughs> we have a segment that we reserve for original cast members of Rent and one other person who's been uh, on Broadway. So <laughs> <laughs> only people have been on Broadway. It's called Life After Rent. And we ask you to theorize about what happened to some of the characters after we leave them. Oh, anyone in particular? Well, um, Mark, we could, you yeah. know, if you've ever given it any thought or you could make something up. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's 23 years later. Um, I mean, I, I do think that it's very likely that Mark, I would like to believe, kept putting, you know, putting his nose to the grindstone in terms of trying to tell documentary stories. And now we're in this documentary boom. And maybe he would have ridden that wave all the way through the documentary boom. Apparently Netflix is realizing that documentaries are a huge driver of their service. And so now there's a lot of support going toward documentary filmmakers. It's not just this fringe thing anymore. So maybe he would have <laughs> benefited from that. Yeah. What about Collins? I mean, I, you know, I, I, I probably Collins would have been able to get on the Protease inhibitors pretty soon after the story. And if so, he's probably doing pretty well and he's continuing to shake up the system. And if he's, if he is alive today, I think he'd be a huge part of the resistance to our president and he'd continue to try to find ways to use technology, especially to, I mean, I think he probably would have been in on like social media activism. Did Joanna Marine stay together? Oh boy. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good question. Who knows? I mean, who knows if Marine can stay with one person, you know, maybe, maybe Joanne finally would have relented and let them have a polyamorous relationship, <laughs> but that's probably unlikely. Yeah. And then what about Roger and Mimi? Well, I mean, I, I do think that it's very likely that Mimi probably doesn't live much longer, mm-hmm. but you know, you never know for sure. And maybe Roger is able to, again, also survive onto into the Friday's inhibitors. And maybe he does find a way to continue pouring all of this experience into making music that maybe starts to connect with people. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe he starts to really forgive himself. Yeah. We we have a little teeny tiny bonus because we have asked this question to Daphne Rubin Vega, Freddie Walker Brown, and Adam Pascal as well. So um I'm gonna give you an answer that one of them gave and you're going to guess which of the three of them <laughs> said it. Are you ready? Which of the three again? It's Adam Daphne and who? Freddie. Freddie, okay, yeah. All right. So one of them said that Joanne and Mark start a film company together and make critically acclaimed shorts. Freddie. 
<laughs> Correct. <Yes. laughs> yeah. So confident. All right. Sarah, you want to do a second one? Yeah. One of them said, Roger owns a Christmas tree farm and everybody gets a tree for Christmas. Even Adina, all the Jews, everybody gets a tree. <laughs> Adam. Uh, it was, was Daphne. Daphne. <laughs> oh, wow. That's funny. That's funny. All right. We have one more. Um, who said this? Maureen did a photo shoot for Maxim and ended up as a contestant on The Bachelor or maybe Rock of Love. She didn't win and then got a job as a makeup artist for sitcoms. Huh. Another Freddie or Daphne. <laughs> Freddie. It was actually, it was Adam. Oh my God. <laughs> you really did one, you did one of each, really? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I, thought, I thought that would be simple. I thought that I, I got, I talked myself out of the possibility. <laughs> okay, that's funny. No, not too complicated. <laughs> Very simple. A little quiz. <laughs> that's funny. Well, that's that's it. Yeah. And thank the, you so much for joining us. Yeah. <clears throat> thank you. Does this bring your podcast to a close now that you've done all the songs? We're doing um, an episode about the movie next. Oh, okay, cool. We really appreciate you spending this time with us. Um, we're huge fans and we loved your live show and everything you do. So yeah. thank you so much for joining us. It was really a dream. Thank you. Thank you. Take care and good luck with, with this and whatever other projects you have going on. I appreciate it. We didn't quite have a chance to talk to Anthony about the movie of Rent, but, but. next week we have a very, very special guest. As Sarah likes to say, we have a very special guest. We do. <laughs> Everyone's uh, a very special guest. We're going to watch the movie Yes, of Rent. Me for the first time ever, Sarah for the first time while awake. <laughs> and we're going to talk to none other than Doug Benson of Doug Loves Movies about the movie Rent. Yeah. So, Will we like it? Will we hate it? Will we fall in between? Oh, I thought you were going to say fall asleep. Will we fall asleep? That's <laughs> Likely. falling in between. Yeah. Will I cry? Probably. <laughs> in the meantime, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Um, you can also email us at everythingisrentpod at gmail.com. Uh, follow us on Instagram at everythingisrent. Uh, and tweet us at everything underscore rent. Thank you to Zach Reno for our music. Thanks so much to James Mulholland for our art. And thank you to our uh, guest engineer for the day, yes. Ryan Kootzhouse. Thanks so much. And an extra, extra, extra special thanks to the woman behind it all. Not not all of it, but most of it um, <laughs> behind Adam Pascal and Anthony Rapp joining us for our podcast. She's our queen. The one and only Jamie Yarrow. Thanks so much, Jamie. She's a star and we owe her everything. Mm -hmm. Okay, bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to talk first? Then you're going to try to introduce him. <laughs> okay. Good luck, me. <laughs> oh, crap! Oh, Hellboy I'm Kate Thompson. And I'm Mark David Christensen. And together we host Ah oh, Crap, a Hellboy podcast. The show dedicated to the half-demon hero brought forth by writer-artist Mike Mignola and published by Dark Horse Comics. Each week, we discuss everything Hellboy. Plus his expanded universe with the BPRD, Abe Sapien, Lobster Johnson, and many more. That's Aw Crap, a Hellboy podcast on Campfire Media or wherever you get your podcasts. Campfire.